would you open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 18. There has never been a human being who followed God that was not given God's prophetic plan. From Adam to the new heaven and the new earth, human beings are always directed by God to look onward and upward. It is always onward and upward that we are to look, fixed on Christ, looking ahead. When we look behind us, we carry guilt. When we look around us, we carry stress. When we look forward, we carry hope. So Adam was in earshot of God speaking to Satan, promising that someone would come who would crush the work of Satan. And he would have lived the 930 years of his life knowing that, looking forward, knowing that a Redeemer is coming. The, the first probably author in the Bible is Job, um, who lived long before Moses, who wrote Genesis. Um, and in the middle of the book of Job, without any scripture, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the end of it all, I will stand before him. So there has never been a human being who accepts creation, who accepts what God has put in front of them, that God has not directed him forward. So we're going to look at what scripture calls the triumphal entry of Christ, um, not from the perspective of the people so much that were worshipers that day, because the ones who looked at it as a worship service probably left empty when Jesus died on the cross. We are always commanded to look forward. It has always been that way. So when we think of the death of the cross today, we are to remember it while looking forward. Remember the death of Christ as you anticipate his return, Paul tells us. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, help us to have the view from outside personal experience. What was really happening just a few days before your crucifixion? Something that the scriptures take us from Genesis to Revelation was happening on that day. If they would have known it, the kingdom would have come. If we understand it, we will anticipate the second coming of Christ more than we currently do. Help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen. So we're not going to look at, we're going to have limited examples, but we look at Genesis 18:22. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each one, but we're realizing that um, Abraham had an understanding of the gospel. Abraham had an understanding of the second coming. Abraham had an understanding of the millennium. Um, so we're going to, you might want to stick something in the gospel of John and, and in the book of Genesis as we get started here so we can move quickly towards the prophecies relating to the, what we call Palm Sunday. In Genesis 18, what has happened is if, if you look in the first verse of Genesis 18, you see that three men came. These were theophanies of Christ and two angels. 
So Jesus came in the form of a man, and two angels came as forms of men in Genesis 18. The gospel is shown from a mountain overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham. So he is anticipating Christ, Christ's rule, Christ's authority, and even the millennium, and he is going to see a forecursor of battles in Israel, like Psalm 83, like um, the, the wars that we have seen happen throughout history, and ultimately the war of Gog and Magog, he's going to see a pre-picture of that. So as these three men come to Abraham, two of them leave, Abraham has insight that the third one is the Son of God. So he looks down over and, and Jesus tells Abraham what Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, that God always knows how to rescue the righteous while holding the condemned for punishment. So he has that conversation with Abraham. We're just going to look at one verse. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. He is standing right next to pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And Jesus is explaining the gospel to him as angels go to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So hold your place there and go to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, the theological gospel, in other words, the one who describes from heaven's view what was actually happening in the Old Testament and the New Testament is primarily John. You grew up with the King James hearing the words, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Every time in your Bible that it says that, it's in the Gospel of John. Because John will then explain what Jesus was referring to. So John writes this long after the other Gospels, and he has insight far beyond what he had when he lived these experiences. We pick it up in John chapter 8 and verse 56. What is happening here is they are clinging to Abraham. They are clinging to Moses. All throughout this, these are people wanting Jesus dead, calling him names that I won't even repeat and accusing him of things that we don't have time to look into. And they're saying, we have our father Abraham. We have our father Abraham. And we pick it up in verse 56. Jesus says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it. And was glad. What is happening before them, Jesus Christ in flesh, Abraham saw. He didn't just hear about it, God showed it to him. And they say to Jesus in verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him because Jesus, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when Moses saw a theophany of Jesus 
Jesus said to him, tell them that I am is sending you. So there are more than seven I am's, but there are seven I am's throughout the Gospel of John. But this is one of a, a few other occasions where he uses it, like walking on water. And here he is saying, I'm the one who spoke to Moses. And he would explain elsewhere in the Gospels that I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. And yes, I met Abraham, and yes, not only 50 years ago, but 2,000 years ago, but at the beginning, Genesis 1-1, Jesus says to them, I am. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to move fairly quickly till we get to some specific prophecies of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entrance of Jesus. Um, in Hebrews Chapter 11, we're talking about Abraham here in verse 8. Paul will explain to us here that he saw all the way to heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. Picking it up in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So when we read Revelation 21 and 22, this city with foundations whose architect is God described Abraham was allowed by God to see all the way there. So he lived 2,000 years before Christ. That's 4,000 years ago. But Abraham knew Jesus would come. Abraham knew Jesus would die on the cross and raise from the dead. Abraham knew that there would be a millennial kingdom. And Abraham knew that there would be a new heaven and a new earth. Go back to Genesis in chapter 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob, who is the promised son, as described in Genesis 25, is heading to Paden Aram to get a wife from his relatives there so that he wouldn't marry a Canaanite woman. And in verse 28, he is on his way there. He is well north of Jerusalem at Bethel, and Bethel gets named in this chapter. Bethel means house of God because he calls this place the house of God. Look at the language closely as we go through this, beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which the stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. This is a theophany of Jesus Christ. The grandson of Abraham is seeing pre-incarnate Christ. And he said... I am the Lord 
the God of your father Abraham and Isaac. This is a turning point in Jacob's life. He has grown up with Rebekah and Isaac and Esau, and to this point he knows God as his grandfather's God and his father's God. This encounter with God is much like Paul's road to Damascus. He comes into this encounter knowing that the God of heaven and earth is the God of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, and that will change in this encounter. Verse 14, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. That's a promise Jesus gives us in Matthew 28, 20. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, which means house of God. Though the city used to be called Luz, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and watch over me on my journey, I am taking and he will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, meet all of his needs. Philippians 4.19 Verse 21, So that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me, I will give you, a, I will give a tenth. So tithing comes long before the law is given. And it, Jacob is the one who proclaims that here. And he simply says, God, if you'll go with me wherever I go, if my needs will always be met by you, then you will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob which God is known at throughout the rest of the Bible after this experience. Turn in your Bibles again to John in relationship to Jacob. John chapter 1. If we read into what is happening here, Nathaniel is probably in prayer. He doesn't know or believe that this Nazarite from um, Nazareth is who he claims to be. And he, in his prayer, he is undoubtedly thinking about his ancestor, Jacob. Remember what Jacob saw? He saw a stairway that was on earth that went up to heaven, and at the top of this, he sees Jesus standing there. And he says, none other, this is none other than the gate of heaven. 
Those are all theological points that John will declare to us in in John, I think, chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. This isn't just the gate. Jesus becomes the gate himself. So in verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael is putting this, these things all together. Verse 49, he declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So instead of seeing angels on a stairway and Jesus at the top, he says, I'm the stairway. I'm the gate. I'm the way to heaven. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. I'm the resurrection and the life. Um, I am the bread of life. I'm all of these things. And Nathaniel acknowledges him as all of those things. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Each, each person of faith is told to look forward. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees a theophany like Abraham and like Jacob. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4, we read, and it tells us, by the way, back in verse 2, if you look there, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames. So theologically, we are shown many examples. We've already seen two. This is the third one. The angel of the Lord is God. How do we know that? Because he will tell us here. How does it have to be Jesus? Because the only visible form of God has only been Jesus. So he goes into the bush as the angel of the Lord. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him. God called to him from within the bush, meaning the angel of the Lord is God. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am, the f I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and because of what we saw with Jacob, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He didn't realize until he heard his voice that it was God. Turn to John chapter 5 as John connects the dots again in the gospel of John. So in John chapter 8, there's a furious argument going on with people who hate Jesus and Jesus. In John chapter 5, there's a furious argument going on with people who hate Jesus and Jesus. And this time, instead of clinging to Abraham, they're clinging to Moses. And we pick it up in verse 45 of chapter 5. 
Jesus says, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? We didn't go to Deuteronomy 18, but in Deuteronomy 18, Moses gives a prophecy. God is speaking to Moses. He says, I'm going to send a prophet like you in the future. We know this is Jesus because Paul um, affirms this and Peter affirms this in the New Testament, that he is the prophet, capital P. And he says, God the Father says, I will hold everyone accountable to listen to him. If you listen to my son, so when we see it, the baptism of Jesus, when we see um, at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. That first was spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, through Moses to us. Moses was told to look forward. Moses knew that there was a prophet coming that was the Son of God. Let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel as we're getting closer and we're pointing towards Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is, is way more significant than a few days before Jesus was crucified. If, and God is omniscient, if the people of Israel would have been fully compliant with God. Jesus coming on Palm Sunday would have brought the kingdom of God immediately. Now in his omniscience, which I'm grateful for, because I wouldn't be here if that happened. Because that would have invoked a thousand-year reign of Christ that we know as the millennium, and then there would have been the new heaven and the new earth. Well, I'm 2,000 years from there. So not only would I not be saved, I wouldn't be if the Israelites would have obeyed. So God in his omniscience understands all of this. But he points, and this is, again, with prophecy, we're always to look forward. So we're looking forward from before Christ. Does that make sense? In other words, it seems like we're looking backward when we look to Abraham and we look to Jacob and we look to Moses and now we look to Daniel, we're going back to them to look forward. Abraham saw God's day and rejoiced. Moses knew that Jesus would be the prophet and he rejoiced. So rather, we're going back in time, but we're looking forward. We're not looking backward. In Daniel chapter 9, we are looking forward. And in verse 25, Look at these first three words. Know and understand. Know and understand this. In other words, to the Jews, to you and I, whoever reads this verse, all the information in the Bible to tell you what is being said here is available for you to understand. Not for you to guess about. It's not mysterious. God expects us to know prophecy. He expects us to know the order of things in the future, and he expected the Jews to know that 2,000 years ago. So no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, Messiah, 
means anointed one. Until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. There are so many connectors to this in the Old Testament and the New Testament in that verse and a half that I just read. So if we go back all the way to Adam, they are told that an offspring of Eve will accomplish this. When we, we go forward to Abraham, Abraham is standing on the hill with the one who's going to accomplish this. Jacob is told that the one that he saw is the gate to heaven. We go forward to, to um, Genesis 49 and verse 10, and then Jacob prophesies over Judah and says, Judah, the descendant will come from you. And then he gets to the, the king from Judah. The first king from Judah is David, and that's why the, the kingship starts with him and not with Saul. And he prophesies to David, saying, it will be through your family that the Messiah will come. And he promises him that, and David fully accepts that. Now we come to Daniel, and Daniel is telling us here that in 69 sevens, Jesus will ride in on a donkey. He's doing that as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to bring his kingdom into power on earth. And he tells us things here like it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. That's only when Nehemiah goes back. He says it's the 69 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. And Isaiah, um, we may have time to look at that. Isaiah describes that. Zechariah describes how he will come. But first, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Daniel is told about 100 years before the book of Nehemiah chapter 2 that the moment the decree is signed to rebuild Jerusalem, that it will be 69 sevens. It will be 483 years to the day that Jesus will come in riding on a donkey from the day the decree is given. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, let me get there with you. Nehemiah chapter 2, and we look at the top of the chapter to begin with. In the month of Nisan, does anybody know what month on the Jewish calendar Jesus dies on the cross? Nisan. In fact, this would be um, the same day as Passover when Nehemiah is given this decree. Um, this, this same month, this date is given to us in the Bible and in the secular realms in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. That year is 483 years to the day to when Jesus rides in on a donkey. So Daniel says, know and understand this. In other words, the information is there. Um, you're going to know 
It's from Eve. It's from Judah. It's from David. He would be born in Bethlehem, Mike says. Micah says. Daniel is now saying that it will be exactly, um, the, the time will be exactly what Daniel says. So we pick it up in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? He's going to ask him for a decree. Daniel says when the decree is signed, it will be 483 years until Jesus comes. Nehemiah says, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. This is specifically what Daniel was writing about. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Interesting. I set a time. He probably is completely aware of Daniel's prophecy. Verse 7, I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters, decree that Daniel talks about, to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter, another decree, to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. A Jewish cupbearer to the king asks a foreign king, will you allow me to stop serving you and go rebuild Jerusalem? And also, Sanballat, the Hornites, and other evil people in the trans-Euphrates, which is Samaria, effectively, they'll do anything to stop me. Will you send them letters saying, leave them alone? And... Will you supply all the material for me to rebuild Jerusalem? Yes, yes, yes. He signs it, and when he picks up his pen, the clock is ticking. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah, if you go to Matthew and go backwards, Malachi, Zechariah. So we have a date now. We have a specific day in the future, 483 years forward from Nehemiah, when Jesus will come. Zechariah tells us what that will look like. The coming of Zion's king, my Bible says before verse 9. That's just an introduction to what we're talking about here. This is when the king comes to Jerusalem. This is how he will come. First of all, let's pay attention because there's two prophecies here. The first one is, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. That prophecy is fulfilled on Palm Sunday by those yelling Hosanna to the king. So they're obeying the prophecy of Zechariah when they yell. And then he says, 
lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he gives two specific prophecies that go with Daniel and start with Nehemiah that you'll know when he's coming because he will come gentle and riding on a donkey. So the first time that anyone knowing the scriptures saw Jesus on a donkey, they would have rightly said, Hosanna to the King of Kings. Praise God. Because they would have been fulfilling prophecy and some of them would have simply been obedient. Um, in Isaiah 53, we won't have time to look at all of these, but that's when um, Daniel says, and then the anointed will be cut off and have nothing. Isaiah describes that in Isaiah 53, verses 8 and 9, cut off from the land of the living, buried with the wicked, Isaiah says. That's in Daniel's prophecy as well. Um, so turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 43. Understand the omniscience of God is a plan that man cannot destroy. <clears throat> in the desired will of God, the world would have believed in the Messiah through the nation of Israel. And if that would have happened, there are so many questions that I can't answer because I'm not God. But for example, when Elijah is born in Luke chapter, not Elijah, John the Baptist is born in the book of Luke in the first couple of chapters. He is said by Zechariah when his lips are open to be born in the spirit of Elijah. And Jesus says in chapter 11 of Matthew, he says, if they would accept me now, I would bring the kingdom now. And they say to him, well, but doesn't Malachi say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus says, John the Baptist would be Elijah if you would accept me now. So that's why when he was conceived, he was born in the spirit of Elijah. So God knows everything. He knows that they're going to reject him, but he says through John the Baptist that if you would accept me, he would be Elijah. Make straight the path for the Lord, Isaiah writes. Clear the way for the Lord, Malachi writes. Same statement applied to Elijah in Revelation 11 and John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. So he dressed like Elijah. He preached like Elijah. And like Elijah, if they would have accepted him then. So last week in Church Builders, <coughs> we saw how in around 590 B.C. that the temple was desecrated by Tammuz and Jupiter and um, horrible things. So the glory of the Lord pulls up from the Ark of the Covenant, and then he goes out the threshold into the courtroom. He turns to the east, and he walks out of the temple, or he's not walking, he's hovering, and he goes out the temple, he goes out the east gate, and he goes to the Mount of Olives, and he goes back to heaven, just like Jesus does at the end of the Gospels. Ezekiel, 600 years before Christ, 
is prophesying the glory of the Lord returning to the temple, which we know as the millennium. But he's writing this to the Jews so that if when he comes, they would know what he's coming for and they would recognize it and the glory of the Lord would surround him. So Ezekiel is seeing this and I, in chapter 43 of Ezekiel. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east. He's looking out the gate. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was was radiant with his glory. The land outside the temple, this is such an awesome coming to the temple, that looking out the temple, the temple gate to the east, and then looking out the gate to the east that overlooks the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives, Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives, and the glory is so magnificent that it is covering the entire territory, and he's moving towards the temple. Verse 3, The vision I saw was like that of the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city in 586 B.C. And like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place for my throne, the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. Now turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day the crowd had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Blessed is the one That's Messiah, who comes in the name of the Lord, Kyrios. Blessed is the king of Israel, John chapter 1 with Nathanael. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Exactly what Zechariah, he's quoting Zechariah there. The first half of Zechariah 9, 9, they're fulfilling by saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They're fulfilling prophecy. They're watching prophecy unfold right in front of them. John's watching it and he doesn't understand until he writes this. Verse 16. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written. Everything we've read today and much more, they were all written about him. John 5, John 8, John 12. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. 
Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Turn to Luke chapter 19. So John gives us prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. If we move forward in the gospel of John, John will say, This fulfilled this prophecy. This fulfilled this prophecy. In Luke chapter 19, we have this path that Luke ex- describes extensively. Understand that in the omniscience of God, he can make a stop off at Jericho, a city that was never to be rebuilt after um, Joshua chapter 6 it was to be destroyed forever but there are people there that he needs to save too so he makes this journey through Jericho understand Jericho is north of Jerusalem so if I give you a picture um, if we're looking this is north here's Jerusalem here's Jericho here's Megiddo Jesus is coming in a sense from Megiddo to Jericho to the to the east of the Mount of Olives to the Mount of Olives, in the gates, in the courtyard, and in the temple. That's the picture that he is literally walking a week before his crucifixion. So he's in Jericho, which is between Megiddo and Jerusalem, when he meets Zacchaeus. We're going to zero in on when he gets east of the Mount of Olives. And understand that what Ezekiel wrote is what would happen here if they accepted him. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, ahead from Jericho. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, these two familiar cities are actually in and on the Mount of Olives. At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, Zechariah 9.9, which no one has ever ridden. This is a colt only for Jesus. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. This would have had to have been a well-informed person or a, a completely aloof person. I would say the former. This is an informed person. Because Jesus wasn't accepted as Lord by very many people. Blessed is the Lord who is coming, the prophets told us. He sees him as the Lord. And so they do it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying this colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. Kurios needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread out their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Undoubtedly, these people know prophecy. 
He's not in the temple courtyard. He's not even in Jerusalem. He is across the Kidron Valley to this mountain range that we know is the Mount of Olives. And he's beyond the Mount of Olives, coming to the Mount of Olives, and they're waiting for him out there. And they're yelling way outside the temple courts. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So I don't know what percentage of them, but a lot of those people know. They have figured out the day. They've been anticipating this. They see him on a donkey. They're out there at the mountains to meet him as he is making the approach. They're probably familiar with Ezekiel because it's the path that Ezekiel gave us. When he came near, verse 37, the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Creation knows the king is coming. If the mouths of people wouldn't have opened, creation would have spoke. This is the king. The king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. Blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says to the Pharisees, this is the day. This is the day, verse 41. This is the saddest that we see Jesus in the Bible. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now... It is hidden from your eyes. If you would have understand Moses and Abraham and David and Jacob and Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, if you would have known the scriptures were pointing at me. John says, I admit, I didn't know. John says it wasn't until he raised from the dead that we realized all those scriptures meant him. And we just saw it, John says. Some of the people did know. Some of the people did. But when he leaves the Mount of Olives, and, he, and if we read the other Gospels, he gets to the Mount of Olives. In order to fulfill pr prophecy, he says, go in the city and get this colt. Tell him the Lord needs it. Come back out of the city. Go across the Kidron Valley. Come up to me, and I will make my entrance. And he gets on the donkey, and the disciples are going, I wonder why he's doing this. But there are some people in the Mount of Olives saying, it's the king, it's the king, it's the king. And they're literally taking off their coats and throwing it down and letting a donkey walk on it because they're saying, it's the king, it's him. And he comes through the Kidron Valley and he comes in the east gate and he's walking towards the temple and business as usual. Nobody even pays attention. And Jesus is weeping. If you would just know, it's me. I would give you peace. 
But now, the end of verse 42, it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus hardened them because their hearts were hard. From this moment on, it's difficult for the conversion of a Jew. Not impossible, but difficult. The result of their not knowing prophecy is verse 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God coming to you. The person who gave him the donkey accepted that he was God. The people on the Mount of Olives seem to accept that he is God. When he came to his father's house, they said, you're not God. We don't want you. So 37 years after this moment, the temple that was enormous and gold-plated and, and just amazing, the courtyard of the temple held 1.2 million people, was completely destroyed to the ground because they did not know prophecy and they did not accept him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He makes the exact path that Ezekiel gives when the glory of the Lord fills the temple, which will be the path when Jesus returns. Um, this path always looks forward. It looks forward with Adam. It looked forward with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, Zechariah, all the way to Jesus coming. When we look at history, this is going to be the path. These are places when Jesus walks from Megiddo to Jericho to east of the Mount of Olives to the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley into the temple to the temple and clears the temple. That's the path. So if we look in history, we won't look all of these up. Jesus is coming to the temple at this time because the glory of the Lord is not in the temple. But a lot of garbage is. People making profits over exchanging animals, people not worshiping God, people worshiping money in his temple. He clears it with a whip and says, is not my father's house to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. He is clearing the temple here for the third time. He's coming to it to clear it because the garbage needs to get out so the king can come in. So if we go back 900 years before Christ, a man named Asa, who was the grandson of, great, let's see, the, the great-grandson of Solomon, um, the grandson of Rehoboam. So Solomon... The, the, the nation of Israel fell apart because of the idolatry of Solomon. Solomon married a woman from Ammon. Remember who Ammon is? Lot's daughter got their dad drunk and slept with their dad. And the son's name was Ammon. The Ammonites worshipped Chemesh and Baal and Ashtoreth and Solomon mar married one of them. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who is the one who realizes the temple or the 
nation of Israel splitting, he follows daddy. He marries an Ammonite. Her name is Mekah. And Mekah has Asherah poles set up in the temple to worship her as the queen of heaven. Hezekiah, or Asa, the next generation, is a faithful king. And he goes in and he takes all this garbage out and he carries it to the Kidron Valley and he burns it in this valley. A hundred years after that, a king named Jehoshaphat, or excuse me, Hezekiah, a hundred years later, the same situation in the temple. Hezekiah takes all the garbage out of the temple and he takes it and he throws it in the Kidron Valley. A hundred years after that, Josiah clears the temple, takes all of the Asherah poles and the Baal worship, he burns them, then he grinds it into powder and then he sprinkles it over, it says, the graves of the common people who were worshiping these idols. Those people are buried in the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is the largest tomb in the world. There are more Israelites buried in the Mount of Olives than any other place on earth. So this path that Jesus is coming in on, he is walking in and he's walking through all of these tombs and around these osseries with all these bones in them of these people that worshipped Baal. And then he walks through the Kidron Valley where they have piled up all the garbage and burned it. The Kidron Valley, all the temple, like in Solomon's day at one time, they killed probably close to a quarter of a million animals. Whenever they killed the animals in the temple, the the runoff place was the Kidron Valley. So the blood and the fat and the things that were burning, and if they burned outside the city, it would be in this Kidron Valley. Um, The Kidron Valley, Kidron means a valley of decision. It is called in Joel chapter 3 and verse 2 and verse 12, the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means God has judged. So when Ezekiel sees him coming over all of these graves and covering, coming through this filth in the Kidron Valley, he sees the glory of the Lord overwhelm it all. And all he can see is the glory. That's what Christ in the temple means. Ezekiel will then explain that water will flow from underneath the temple. It will flow down the Kidron Valley. It will flow down the Jordan. It will flow to the Mediterranean Sea. And it will cleanse everything when Jesus takes his throne. Um, Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. In Revelation chapter 16, Jesus is coming back to earth. What Ezekiel saw in chapter 43 will be realized in Revelation 16. Jesus is coming back to earth at a battle that we know as Armageddon. We're going to pick up the text in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. What is happening here, to give you a map visual, I should have brought a map today. 
But up north of Jerusalem, the Euphrates River allows armies to come from the, from the east. And we see Megiddo, where they're all flowing into Megiddo. Um, Armageddon is Harmageddon. Har in Greek is Mount. Megiddo is Megiddo in Greek. So they're going to the mountain of Megiddo during this time. And it says that God is gathering them, Joel chapter 3. He is pulling all of the nations to Armageddon, to Mount Megiddo. Um, verse 13, then I saw the three impure spirits that looked like frogs and came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world and gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they, these demons, are trying to gather everyone to, to Mount Megiddo to fight against Jesus. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon or Harmageddon or Mount Megiddo. Verse 17, the angel, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl onto the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. So the path that Jesus always takes to the temple. He is going to come down on the Mount of Olives outside the east gate. His feet are going to touch the ground and the earth is going to split in two. And there's going to be a valley. Um, so at that time, the valley will be bigger than the Kidron Valley, but the Valley of Jehoshaphat, as Joel calls it, the valley God is judged, the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Decision, that's where all of the armies on the earth are going to funnel down this same path that Jesus took on Palm Sunday. He's going to bring them to the east gate of Jerusalem and he's going to destroy them. Then he's going to come down the Mount of Olives like he once did. And he's going to cross the Kidron Valley and the glory of the Lord will overwhelm everything. And he's going to go in the east gate and ultimately, he's going to make his way into the Holy of Holies, and he's going to reside over the Ark of the Covenant. So there's no one at any time, including us, that can't look forward to what Jesus was doing in his plan on Palm Sunday. His plan is when people are willing, Israelites, the glory of the Lord will fill the temple and the kingdom of God will be set up. They weren't willing. So the same thing will happen someday soon where all the armies will be gathered to the valley of decision where Jesus rode across on that donkey 2,000 years ago. And the people that understood would have been weeping with Jesus. Don't you see? It's him. All the prophets wrote about him. Moses wrote about him. Everybody wrote about him. It's him. This is the exact day that Daniel said. And Jesus' tears are pouring down his face. 
because he knows that they're not going to accept him. He knows that they're going to reject him. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those who were shouting Hosanna 2,000 years ago, they would have now been in the place where they realized what Isaiah 53 fully meant. That Jesus would be cut off. That he would be taken, as Isaiah says, from the land of the living to the grave of the wicked. And Isaiah makes crystal clear that he did that for my sins. Lord, as we walk through a a lightly referred time of year that we remember that the king did come. We remember that he took every punishment for my sin. We remember that he died where I should have died. We remember that he rose again, and we will celebrate that, Lord willing, next Sunday. Everything tells us, look forward. Remember what he did as we anticipate his coming again. Help us to do that in our personal lives and increase our opportunities to introduce your son to someone else. In Jesus' name, amen.